speak God's word together. This comes from Mark chapter 8, verse 22 through 9, verse 1. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is God's word. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Father, we ask that you would help us to um, understand what it means to be a disciple, uh, that we would cast off, we'd throw off, we'd put aside our visions of what discipleship looks like and should look like and life should look like, and we submit humbly to Jesus as King of Kings, as the one who sits on the throne. So help us, Lord, to see that this morning from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this passage is is an exciting one because it's probably the most, one of the most practical passages in in scripture that we'll ever read. That's a bold claim, I realize, but, but it tells us what we must confess about Jesus and what it means to, um, embrace him for ourselves if we're to be his disciples. And so there's really two parts of discipleship when we look at it. There is, um, you know, if you want to be a a disciple or a a learner, a follower of Jesus, if that's what you want, then you need to do two things. You need to confess that something is true about Jesus, and you need to follow him. Those are the two things. And so 
let's look at this first, confessing the king. Um, Mark, he, he put together a story uh, of this blind man who gained eyesight and of the blind disciples gaining an insight about who Jesus is. Why might he do this? Um, I think he's, he wants to teach us more and more about what faith is, what it means to believe. And, and so the blind man, he sees people, but they look like trees walking, right? He can't make out their faces. Everything's just a dim shadow. Um, and, and the way this blind man sees people as shadows is the same way that the disciples, actually many people, see Jesus. They don't see him for all he is. They see him only as a prophet. Jesus, in other words, is like a tree walking. Um, let's look at verse 27. So, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. Who do people say that I am is a very weird question, is it not? Um, I mean, we're used to the questions, you know, what do you do, right? What do you do for a living? That's a normal question. Who are you is kind of a weird question to be asking somebody, right? Like, who do people say that I am? That's, a, that's, that's kind of a strange category. But, but the question, who do people say that I am, is reflecting a deeper question that the disciples have long been asking in this gospel, right? Uh, when Jesus calmed the storm, right, what did the disciples say? They said, who is this? Right, that was their question. They're going, who is this that even the wind and the sea obeys him? So they're wondering, who is this guy? Um, and, and people then had many different views about Jesus, uh, just like today, we find people believe all kinds of different things about who Jesus is. Um, some believe that he was a great moral teacher. Muslims actually believe that Jesus is a great prophet. Uh, Buddhists believe he was a wise teacher. Hindus believe that Jesus was a holy man. Right? So, I mean, these are all kinds of different religions, all saying a lot of pretty, pretty incredible things about who Jesus is. Ever since Moses... Uh, said, God would raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers, in Deuteronomy 18. Israel has been waiting for a prophet to come, right, from Israel, um, who would lead God's people. And so, to say that Jesus is like any of these prophets, Elijah, John the Baptist, that's stacking him up in a pretty, I mean, giving him some pretty good street cred. Like, this is a good guy, you know, this is, this is a prophet, um, a pretty popular figure. And I think people still do that, right? People still hold Jesus up as a popular figure. But do we see Jesus for who he really is? Do we see him for who he is? Do we see Jesus as more than a walking tree? Like with this blind man, right? Jesus touched him once. The man could just see dimly. He sees the shadows. He sees the walking trees. Then Jesus touches him again, and what happens? Right, eyesight, he can see clearly. So Mark 8, 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus touches the disciples for a second time, as it were, right? When he asks the second question, he says, um, he says, but who do you say that I am, right? Not, not who do they say I am, but who do you say that I am? 
He's as, touching them a second time. And like with the blind man, it's like the scales are falling off. The sight is restored. And what does Peter say? He says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And this is, this is the turning point in Mark's gospel. This is the very first time anyone says anything like this. Um, up until this, till this point, right, at Jesus' baptism, God himself said, um, you know, this is the Christ. That's where we see that language. Um, demons said that this is the Christ. But no man has ever uttered that Jesus is the Christ until this moment. At this point in this gospel. It's, it's the absolute centerpiece of the gospel. I mean, chapter 8, right, out of 16 chapters, it's literally at the center of the book. Um, and, and, and Peter acknowledges Jesus is the Christ. Now I want to point out something that we all take for granted. Um, it's so easy to take it for granted because it's just common language, right? Um, but Jesus Christ is not a first and last name. How many people think Jesus Christ, Christ is his last name? I mean, I, I've thought that before, it's, right? Like Jesus, and then yeah, Christ is his, like his family name. Um, Christ is not a name, it's a title, okay? Uh, Greek, uh, sorry, uh, Christ is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew title for Messiah, which literally means the anointed one the anointed one, which has a huge history in the Old Testament. It refers back to a bunch of passages with a wide meaning. Um, to boil it down, uh, Jews who believed in a coming Messiah believed three things about a Messiah. So first, um, that this Messiah would cleanse the temple. Second, that this Messiah would come and get rid of all enemies. And third, that this Messiah would bring justice to the world, God's justice to the world. So, so it would be a Messiah who would come and bring God's kingdom and make everything that's wrong with the world right. That's what this Messiah would do. The kind of king, though, the kind of Messiah that Jesus is, is so different from every kind of king or Messiah that everyone was expecting. Um, at this time, you know, kingship, even Messiahship, it carried all kinds of uh, political and military connotations with it. Um, Kingship meant victory. But Jesus has this very different kind of kingship in mind. And so he tells them in verse 30, he says, and he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. Hmm. Why would he not want anyone to tell anyone about the fact that he is the Christ? Why would he mention that? Any guesses? They weren't ready? Weren't ready? That's, part, that's partly true. They're not ready. They're not ready because the, the term Messiah, right, uh, ha had such a wide meaning that it could so easily be misunderstood. Um, and so by, by, by using that term, right, that he's the Christ, that he's the Messiah, it probably would have hindered rather than helped Jesus' ministry at the time in communicating what his mission is all really about. And so he shares what his mission is about, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And I love verse 32. And he said this plainly. You know, just like, yeah, by the way, like, doom. <laughs> like, destruction. Like, big failure. It's, just, it's, it's remarkable. So when we read the phrase, uh, Son of Man... We might be thinking, son of man, like he's a son of man, kind, so he's human. Um, but this is also another title, like Christ, 
It's another title in the Old Testament. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. It's a great place to find it. And uh, Daniel refers to this messianic figure who is going to come with angels and he's going to set everything wrong and make it right. So again, we see this kind of vision of, of, of a Messiah. But Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must suffer, not have victory. The Son of Man must suffer. It's it's a shocking thing. It's unheard of in the history of Israel, right? Never before have, um, have, has any Israelite ever thought of a Messiah figure who is going to come and who must suffer. Um, there's an image of the suffering servant. Anybody know where that is in Isaiah? Isaiah chapter... 50, yeah, 53, there it is. Isaiah chapter 53 talks about the suffering servant, but even that text at that time, it was not associated with the Messiah. So it's inconceivable, it's unfathomable, it's, it's uncomfortable, especially for Peter as he's hearing this, it's uncomfortable that, that Jesus, right, being the true Messiah, being the Christ, that he must suffer. That the Messiah must suffer would have made no sense at all uh, a Messiah who's supposed to defeat evil, a Messiah who's supposed to bring justice. Right? Thinking about that, entering the shoes of a Jew at the time, how can a Messiah conquer, vanquish, eliminate evil if he's going to suffer and he's going to die? Right? That doesn't make any sense. Um, it sounds absurd. And who would want to have a king who doesn't win, but who loses? Who would want to have a king who doesn't succeed in his role, but is rejected and killed? Who would want a king who says, this must happen, right? Sounds like a king you shouldn't follow. But if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to confess that he is king in your life. That you'll have no other gods before him, that you won't let money or status or reputation or relationships get in the way of him sitting on the throne of your heart and being the king of your life. Peter's just confessed, right? Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. He said that. But when Jesus begins to unpack and explore what it means to be a follower of this Christ, of this Messiah, man, Peter's going AWOL. <laughs> I don't know if I can follow that. Jesus, I don't know if that's the kind of life that I want to be living. When we come to believe in Jesus, he calls us to follow him in the way that he wants to be followed, right? We give up our right to be king, little kings and queens, and we give him that authority that he gets to call the shots. So if you want to be a disciple, you have to follow the king. And I want to, as Jesus does, I want us to unpack what that means to follow Jesus as king. So following the king. Verse 32, it continues. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The word for rebuke here is the same word used for rebuking demons in Mark's gospel. So in other words, it's a word that's used to shun the worst forms of evil. And so by using this word, we can see how bothered Peter was. Right? He's, he's super bugged. Um, He's, he's annoyed with the fact that Jesus must suffer and die. And so, verse 33, But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. 
For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So, using the same words, the same word that, that uh, Peter just used, Jesus uses the same word, and he rebukes him. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus rebuked Satan in the wilderness using the same word that he uses right here. And what Jesus finds so offensive about Peter here is his inability to follow Jesus to be his disciple. Instead of being a disciple, Peter's acting like a master. Instead of being a follower, Peter is trying to play God. Instead of letting Jesus sit on the throne, who's sitting on the throne? Peter, right, Peter's sitting on the throne. So, um, I've been a Christian for a good while now, and every single day, I have to make that choice, who's sitting on the throne today? Is Nick on the throne, or is Jesus on the throne? And that choice doesn't get easier every day, right? It feels like it gets harder every day to give up more. Jesus is sitting on the throne. And a lot of days I think I, I am trying to sit there. And, and God reminds me of his grace that only he can sit on that throne. Why is that? Only God can sit on this throne because that throne is a cross. What's so dangerous about what, what Peter is saying here is that he's rejecting his own need for Jesus to be his savior. If Jesus had listened to Peter, he wouldn't be heading to a cross anymore. Without the cross, there's no forgiveness of sins. Without the cross, we're left ourselves to satisfy all the demands of God's law. And we're left ourselves to pay the penalty for our sins, which Romans says is death. And Hebrews, how Hebrews puts it, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so it's a, it's a grave error here that Peter's making. Thankfully, Jesus' throne is a cross. Thankfully, his mind was set on the things of God and not the things of man. And so when Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins, he won by losing. Right? He conquered death. He destroyed sin by hanging on a cross. And his death was not a failure. Far from it, by dying and rising from the dead, he achieved victory over death and over sin. So if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we have to follow Jesus in the way of the king's cross. It's the king's cross. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his, his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and, and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So if we have a, a, a wrong view about who Jesus is, we'll also have a wrong view about what discipleship is, what it looks like. Jesus' way is not a, a way of power, like the world ways, the world's ways. It's not a way of climbing. It's not a way of status-seeking. But it's a way of self-denial. Um, Christian bookstores have for a long time sold these little trinkets, these little crosses. And, you remember, and um, maybe you remember, uh, I remember a time when 
not only would you wear the cross, but you might, um, you'd get the WWJD bracelet, you know, you'd wear that thing. Anybody remember those days? Long time ago. Um, well, we're exposed to the symbol of the cross um, as, as a piece of jewelry, right? As something that you wear around your neck. Um, or you might hear somebody say, you know, uh, at work or something, man, I'm just I'm bearing a cross right now, right? Because they've had a hard week, hard day. And we all have hard days, I get it, you know. But we, we use that language, we use that phrase, bearing a cross. Um, the cross is not a symbol of beauty or an accessory for our life to wear. The cross is a way of life of suffering. In the first century when Jesus was alive, the cross was an instrument of dehumanization and humiliation. The cross was a symbol of pain and shame. And the cross was reserved for society's scum. It was a place of punishment intended to showcase the life of criminals and rebels. And so they would, they would put, they would actually, specifically, Romans would put crosses near highly trafficked areas, right, to placate, to showcase this is someone, right, this leader, this movement um, leader, this is someone that you don't want to follow. Because if you follow this person, like this person hanging on a cross, that is going to be your fate. That's going to be what's going to happen to you. You're going to be hanging on a cross too. And so it, it would be a deterrent, really. It would be follower beware, right? Don't follow this guy. The shocking thing about Jesus' words here is that the symbol of death is the image that Jesus offers to anyone who would follow him. Jesus demands total allegiance. As um, the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, as it says, demands my life, my all. Thinking of Mark's original audience, um, this gospel was probably written in Rome near the time that Emperor Nero was crucifying a bunch of Christians. And so think of the power of these words for these early Christ followers, that if you're going to be strung up on a cross, guess what? That's not a sign of God's abandonment of you. It's actually a sign of God's affection towards you. Because you are following the way of the king's cross. You're following the way of Jesus. And keep believing, in other words. Keep the faith. It would have been a great encouragement for them. So Jesus is saying here, since I'm a king on a cross, if you want to follow me, you must go on a cross too. So what does it mean to really uh, take up our cross? What does it mean to really lose our life for Jesus' sake and the gospel's sake, to find it. The word used in, in verse 35 for life is psyche. It's where we get the word psychology from in our, in our dictionary. And it means your identity, your personhood, yourself. Or kids, your selfie, right? Um, and, and it's what makes you really you. So by using that word, Jesus is saying, don't build your identity on gaining the things of this world. What a, what a powerful word for our lives right now. Um, we live in a culture every day that's selling us something. I'm always amazed at what my kids um, will, will remember from uh, you know, commercials that they're watching. They're always trying to sell me something. 
right? So they turn in the best salesmen of Tide. They're like, Dad, don't, don't you know you need Tide for your laundry? I'm like, yeah, okay. Uh, Dad, by the way, Geico, it's the best auto, auto insurance you can ever have. Yes, okay, gotcha. Um, Dad, uh, uh, you know, um, do you want to take Rapatha? Here are the side effects of Rapatha, by the way. And he goes through the whole list, and God, no, I don't want to take Rapatha. I don't need Rapatha or Trulicity or the whole list of things, right? Marketing very well. We're marketed to. And all, all the world is saying to us every day, right, if you gain this, if you take this, if you um, acquire this, if you achieve this, right, then you will find yourself. Then you'll have worth and you'll have value. Um, in older cultures, more traditional cultures around the world, you're nobody unless you have family or kids. Um, in our culture, it's more, it's more of what you have, right? Uh, the stuff, material stuff that you have. Uh, but in any case, whether it's status or money or achievement, it's what shapes and forms an identity. And these identities are all performance driven. Jesus is telling us today that will not work. <laughs> Saying it's not going to work. If you want to gain the whole world, uh, you'll lose yourself, right? Let's think about that for a minute. If you put all your chips in your career and your career goes south, what happens to yourself? You lose yourself, right? If you put all your cards in a, a certain relationship of some kind and something happens to that relationship and it gets shaky, what happens to yourself? You lose yourself. That's what happens. If you put your identity in how much you make or the cars you drive or the house you can buy right, and you lose something, what happens to yourself? You Lose yourself, right? You lose yourself. If you put your identity in how beautiful you look, how much muscle mass you have, or how much weight loss you've achieved, and time catches up, and eventually you can't keep it, what happens to yourself? You lose yourself. Uh, my dad has this saying that he learned from uh, Ray Ortland: everything goes back in the box. Everything goes back in the box. And um, most of you know, recently I, I lost my grandpa. And uh, man, this was a man, he had a lot of achievements. Um, found out uh, as we were going through old uh, documents that he was part of uh, what essentially is the original Men in Black. In, like, the Men in Black are real. Like, there was like, a real military thing like the, with the Men in Black. They weren't called the Men in Black, they had a different name. But they would go to crash sites of like alien aircraft, you know, and make a perimeter so people couldn't access, the public had no access to it. And he was highly trained, you know, where he could, he could parachute out of a plane and within six hours get to the, the location of the crash site and set up a perimeter and all that stuff. Pretty cool. And interrogation and all kinds of other cool stuff. I'm like, whoa, that's amazing. But at the end of the day, right, a whole life lived, everything goes back in the box. Everything. All those years, all that labor, all those incredible achievements. Jesus is telling us this morning, I want you to find a whole new way of living, right? I want you to find a whole new identity, one that you cannot lose, one that cannot ever be taken from you. Jim Elliott was a missionary who, um, who died at the very hands of the people that he was, he was um, preaching the gospel to. And he said this, he said, he's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep 
to gain what he cannot lose. Love that. If you base your identity on Jesus and the gospel, you cannot lose. (laughs) You can only win. Um, Your life will be forever changed, changed by the fact that Jesus went to a cross to lose his identity so that you could have one. An identity of not being an orphan anymore, not being abandoned anymore, but being a son, a daughter of the king. That's what Jesus is inviting all of us into this morning, into this life of discipleship, this call of discipleship to follow the king. He wants to give us that new identity. And by faith, you have it. But in order to win, you have to first give up your agenda. Like Peter had to learn, I think the hard way, he had to give up his quest for power. He had to give up his vision of life that would be of Jesus taking on Rome, and he had to make room for the cross and suffering. That Jesus is the king who went to the cross for us. By the way, Jesus is the only kind of king that I'm aware of who would actually give himself up and give up his throne for the sake of his people. That's a pretty good king. Now our passage ends with this verse, Mark 9, chapter, uh, ch- chapter 9, verse 1. It says this, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. Now some have thought that this means that this generation uh, wouldn't pass, pass away until Jesus returned to earth. Uh, that's not what it means. We know it means something else. That he means even though the kingdom of God began in weakness, right? It started with a cross. It began by suffering and dying. That the story doesn't end there. The story ends with what? With resurrection. With glory and hope. And so the way of Jesus begins in weakness, but it ends in strength. Begins with suffering, but it ends in glory. Will you confess that Jesus is your Lord, that Jesus is your Messiah, that Jesus is your Christ? And will you follow him today and every day from the grave through the cross uh, and through death? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you teach us the the real path of discipleship. Um, That you gave up your place of power and didn't use your power to crush us like the world does but you gave up power to give us power, to give us life, to give us hope, to give us an identity that we never had before and now we have when we find ourselves in you. So I pray, Lord, that we would find ourselves in you this morning, that we would no longer trust in the things of this world, whatever thing it is, whatever person it is, whatever hope it is, whatever desire or appetite it is, that we'd set those things aside and that we would follow you.
that you would be our king, that you would sit on the throne, and we'd gladly give it up so that you can be king in our life. In Jesus' name.